I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello there. I'm so grateful you're here listening today. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. Did you know there's a Once Upon a Gene TV? Yeah, there's a talk show. Super cool. It's on my favorite channel. It's called the Disorder Channel. You can download it for free on Roku or Amazon Fire and find Once Upon a Gene TV alongside a hundred other rare disease films and so many other great resources. I host the show along with the co-founders of the channel, Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabiel. The last episode, we're talking about the financial impacts of rare. Plus, we have a super adorable wheel of laughter at the end of each episode that can't be missed. So check it out. I've gotten several emails recently, and you've asked me to have an episode on the undiagnosed. So I have a couple coming up for you, starting with this one. I met my next guest on the Nord Living Rare Living Stronger Planning Committee. She co-chairs the Patient and Family Support Group for the Undiagnosed Disease Network. She's a research scholar at Stanford, and she's also a mom to an undiagnosed kiddo. Another rare bead triple whammy for you. Her adorable son, Philip, has been through so much, including a liver transplant, and she's sharing the perspective of being persistently undiagnosed. Please enjoy my conversation with Megan Hawley. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Effie. Such a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to meet you. A while back, you messaged me and uh, asked about the undiagnosed journey and if it had been covered yet on my podcast, and it hasn't really. So I thought I'd bring you on to talk about it. You're a triple threat, which is a rare breed in our world. So yeah, give me give us a little background on what that means exactly and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. I was so excited that um, to have the opportunity to come on and talk to you. I love your idea of a triple threat, though. I just think of it kind of as the three legs of the stool that holds up my life. But um, <laughs> I am a, I'm a mom, first and foremost, of um, three really crazy, cool kids. And my middle son, Philip, is undiagnosed with a rare condition. He is six years old and spunky as heck and keeps us super busy, as does his older sister, Gabby, who's seven, and my youngest, Emil, is three. So, you know, that's my, my number one job is taking care of them. But I have also, over the last year or so, become more involved in advocacy, um, specifically related to access to diagnosis for individuals um, with rare diseases, and particularly those with ultra-rare diseases who often can get stuck in this kind of an intractable diagnostic odyssey. And part of how I became involved with 
with the advocacy work is um, because patient is uh, Philip is a patient in the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, which is a, an NIH program that's specifically focused on providing diagnoses for individuals with suspected genetic, rare genetic diseases who have not been able to obtain a diagnosis through um, existing clinically available tests. Um, and But that program, for reasons that we may get into later, is kind of in, in danger of, of falling apart. And so um, I've become involved in advocating for that as a resource for the rare disease community. The third leg of my stool, which falls down fairly frequently, but is my research. So I am a medical anthropologist by training, and I'm a research scholar at the Center for Biomedical Ethics at Stanford. Only recently kind of returned to the workplace in an attempt to claw my way back to uh, um, some of the work that I love to do. Um, so I do research actually on the experiences of patients and families with ultra-rare and undiagnosed diseases. And my particular focus is on how different stakeholders involved in providing sequencing, how their values, how they define kind of benefits and risks um, vary by stakeholder and how that kind of shapes who gets access and when. And so, so that's the third piece of me, I guess. My son, Philip, who really is at the core of, of all of this, is a sweet and spunky six-year-old. And though he has been a part of the Undiagnosed Diseases Network for almost three years now, is still uh, still doesn't have a diagnosis. Well, yeah, those are some pretty strong legs. So please keep all of them up, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So you said that you, Philip is six, and you just started advocating pretty consistently over the last year, which I'm sure you were advocating the whole time. But can you touch on why exactly you've decided to become more active as an advocate and what exactly that resource is that is so important that is falling apart? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I, you're right, I have been advocating all along, but um, you know, more in the space of advocating for my family my, and my child in, in the context of the healthcare system, um, and less about thinking about, frankly, kind of bigger picture issues about what the missing resources are in the space of undiagnosed and rare diseases. You know, we were fortunate, you know, when we were at a point where we had been told you know, that we had been struck by lightning three separate times, you know, about the worst luck you can think of. You know, Philip had all of these different complex medical issues, none of which really fit together. This young neurologist looked at me and said, you know, I think you need the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And, you know, it was like, what? This this exists? <laughs> um, you know, there are people out there who really take on these tough cases and try to try to find out what the answer is. And it was developed as a program. It started by um, Dr. Bill Gall at the NIH many years ago. I, I'm not, a, I should say up front, I'm not a representative of the UDN. I'm, I'm a parent and a participant. But yeah, it started many years ago um, and then was expanded, you know, as we began to really understand the tools of, of exome and genome sequencing for diagnosis of rare disease. They expanded this program, I believe it was in 2008, to be a network where they identified clinical sites and um, scientists who were really interested in advancing the science of rare disease diagnosis through a case study approach where they worked with patients and families who had all the kind of clinical um, indicators of a undiagnosed of a genetic disease, but didn't have a clear genetic diagnosis. And so, um, this program—I was just looking at the numbers um, recently. This program has enrolled, uh, has evaluated uh, about 1,500 patients in its time, and has been successful in diagnosing about a third of them, um, which is pretty incredible given that 
one of the criteria to be admitted is basically that you've exhausted all clinically available options for diagnosis, you're kind of at the end of the road um, in terms of, of kind of where to go next. We certainly were, you know, when we, Philip had had, you know, multiple bowel issues, uh, liver issues, and then he had a stroke out of the blue. And we were like, where do we go? Who, do, who even takes care of us, you know? And and we and that's when we found the the UDN as we call it, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. You know, first clinic Philip was evaluated, but then I was fortunate as I was trying to kind of figure out my my next steps for myself in the world to connect with the patient engagement um, and empowerment resource group, which is the kind of patient and family arm of the UDN, which is a really great group of. Um, individuals who are patients themselves, as well as parents of children who are enrolled in the UDN. Some of us are undiagnosed. Some of us have diagnoses. It's a group that um, really works to support the patients and families, recognizing that you know we are, we we don't have kind of other patient groups we necessarily identify with, um, which is such a what can be such a wonderful thing about getting a diagnosis is you can find others who share. Um, some of the specific kind of challenges and needs. But we try to recreate that for those of us who identify as kind of this in this undiagnosed and ultra rare space. I became involved mostly to support patients and families. But as I've learned more about the organization from the inside, um, learned that this was a program that was developed um, by the Common Fund and established by the NIH through the what's called the Common Fund, which is a it's kind of like an incubator model in that it provides 10 years of funding to really develop a resource. And then it it kind of, pull, it, it actually, I believe, congressionally mandated to pull away. And the goal is to kind of give it wings and allow it to kind of sustain, figure out how to sustain itself. It's been an incredible investment that the NIH has made. You know, the current plan is to basically pull the funding back um, from what it currently is to about a fifth, if not less, and basically to defund the program, which you know, there are some reasons why, you know, a more of a, a model that was oriented in clinical care for patients like Philip and other undiagnosed patients would be good. But the reality is, you know, these cases sit at the intersection of clinical care and research. Like we need research to answer the clinical questions that they need. Um, and without proper NIH funding, this network that's really become a credible resource for the undiagnosed and rare disease community because is at risk of falling apart. Whereas I feel like it needs to be expanded. You know, I, I think, you know, when I reached out to talk about the undiagnosed journey, I, you know, we, you may not have touched on it directly with others, but I think everyone, many and most, I would say, in the rare disease community know that have had their own journey of being undiagnosed. And so I think it's something that resonates across the rare disease community, even if it's not necessarily someone who's still undiagnosed, if you will. Yeah. So what needs to be done exactly? Like, do people need to just sort of lobby to keep funding here? Is fundraising something that should happen? Like, how do we keep it alive? We have lots that we're doing, the, the peer group uh, that is doing. Yes, absolutely. Contacting your elected officials is something that we're definitely encouraging anyone who, who agrees that this is a valuable resource for the rare disease community to do. Um, if, if individuals are interested in doing this but don't really know how, we've created a set of resources um, and an undiagnosed diseases advocates group on Facebook where we're sharing some of those resources. It's open to anyone who's interested in supporting the rare disease community in this way. So our primary focus right now is on advocacy at the federal and to some extent at the state level. 
but we are also in converse, conversations, I should say, the leaders of the UDN, and we are you know, involved in them as well because they, they've been really great about recognizing the importance of patients and families having a voice in the network. We are also you know, discussing with um, a variety of potential other funders about you know, oppor- the needs of the network and the value of it and, and how we might sustain it. So there are multiple lines in the water. It's very much a, a process, but uh, something that we're really just trying to raise awareness about in the broader rare disease community because we think it ultimately could benefit all of us, You know, shorten the diagnostic odyssey, even for those who don't have ultra rare diseases, if we can increase access to and kind of systematize diagnosis for rare disease patients. Yeah, totally. Well, gosh, I hope that that pulls through. I'll I'll, I'll send some emails myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Effie. Thank you. And yes, anyone can definitely reach out to me directly either on Facebook or um, through my Stanford email if you have questions um, or through the peer website. Uh, actually, the peer website would probably be best because uh, I'm not acting in my official Stanford capacity in this role. <laughs> but speaking for myself as a mom, yes, there's the more voices they hear. And, and it's really, it's happening now. The funding cycle and budget allocation season is kind of in, in process. Um, and we do have really great partners at the Every Life Foundation and, and at NORD, as well as um, we've been in direct communication with the chairs of the Rare Disease Legislative Caucus that your listeners may be familiar with. They've been involved in the advocacy space in rare disease. Um, so I think everyone recognizes that this is a valuable resource that needs to be sustained and expanded but it's a matter of how and making sure that the right people are hearing from their constituents about it, about its importance. And we know that, you know, the rare disease community is, we are, we are mighty together. (laughs) Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. I'm sure, you know, like you a few years ago, didn't know about it. I'm sure some of the listeners still haven't heard of it too. So that's great. I do want to touch on one of your other legs, the motherhood one to to little (laughs) Philip. I kind of want to get your perspective for, for those other families who are, in undiagnosed island or whatever you want to call it. I mean, does it feel like you live on Mars and everyone else is on Earth? How do you sort of embrace this uncertainty or do you embrace it because you're obviously still fighting for answers? What does that sort of separation from the diagnosed peers feel like? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it, it feels like many different things kind of all at once. You know, it's it's simultaneously learning to live with a high degree of uncertainty and to manage a, a, com- a child with complex medical needs with no data to guide us and no really clear path forward in terms of, you know, what therapy might work. We, you know, we're often in this situation of, like, do we increase this medication or decrease it? Like, we don't really know what's what the underlying mechanism of disease is. And so we, we're really shooting in the dark. So I think, you know, managing the decision making is the hardest part for me, as, as well as, of course, just not having a sense of what the future holds. When you've been struck by lightning so many times, or at least that's what it feels like, it's really hard to can't think too far ahead. Um, you know, the mantra of kind of taking things a day at a time really takes on a, a whole new meaning. I will also say that, you know, without a diagnosis, we can't even begin to think about therapies. I love listening to the stories of others in the rare disease community and the incredible work that organizations are doing to push for more research and more therapies. And and I'm like wholeheartedly supportive of that and also kind of jealous because we don't get to do that until we have a diagnosis. You know, I think that's why I, I partly feel really committed to trying to like make a community of all of us misfits who don't have a place 
uh, to call home, if you will, an organization of our own, because there are many, many of us. And it's not just those who are undiagnosed. It's also, you know, with, with the advances in sequencing, we're seeing more and more diagnoses of these N of 1 diseases where, yes, you may have a diagnosis, but if there's nobody else who has it, does that really feel like a diagnosis? You know, you don't necessarily get some of the same benefits as others might have in terms of being able to connect, you know, advocate for research, et cetera, that those with that with diagnoses of even more common rare diseases are able to appreciate. So, and then there's just the being a mom part of it and trying to maintain some semblance of of normalcy, which, you know, we we definitely have our, our normal that does not look like any other family's normal. But, you know, for my for my other two children and just packing lunches and, you know, doing laundry and um, <laughs> trying to occasionally take care of myself, which is so important. I will say the connection to the this, the peer group at the UDN and and the other patients and families that I've been able to connect with has meant the world to me. It really has has been a huge kind of psych, psychological and social support um, for me as a mom. Um, who, you know, I have some great mom friends, but it's really hard for them to understand, you know, exactly what our our daily life looks like. Um, and that's something that even these it's amazing how. You know, even someone like you, Effie, or some of the other folks, you know, um, who I meet through Facebook, you kind of feel this immediate connection, even though you don't know each other at all, because there's a level of understanding that few few others have. So, amen. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> yes. I we all feel that way. We 100% all feel that way, and I just. I think it's so valuable when you can find your people in whatever avenue or capacity that is. And, you know, especially in in your little corner, right, where we feel like we're winging it, too, mostly, but you're winging it. And and like you said, it's like a shot in the dark a lot of the time. And that's got to be just a heightened level of stress, I would think, like not knowing if this test is going to work or how Philip might react to something because there isn't another kid that's done it before or maybe getting your hopes up. Like, are there are there procedures that you've had to do that tough decision making for that maybe didn't work out or that you wished you would have had more information on or just maybe learned from? I mean, I, I actually think we make those types of tough, tough decisions kind of on a weekly basis sometimes. I actually wrote a, a piece that of all people, the New England Journal published, which was a shocker to me, but where I really tried to articulate, we get asked all the time, like, or told all the time by our medical team, like, you know, how, how about let's, let's do a biopsy. Maybe we'll learn something from a biopsy or let's do another MRI. Let's, let's, um, you know, let's try this other study where we make him fast for three days and then check his stool and see if that'll tell us something. And, and I think the, the, you know, the decision, those that kind of constant, it's not so much the big decisions, we've had those, but it's the constant barrage of decisions where we're trying to balance, you know, what's the likelihood that we'll learn something valuable from doing something, um, particularly after, you know, doing many things that you know, we don't learn anything, but still feeling the need to try to understand, while also you know, letting him live his life and trying to keep him in school as much as possible, you know, not making him do things like fasting, which of course he, he can't understand and is really, really can be traumatic for him. Um, so it's really, I think, this kind of constant 
you know, again, weekly, if not daily, kind of dance of, you know, trying to weigh what we know about him and what he needs for his quality of life with what we need or at least hope for, you know, in terms of understanding what's going on with his medical condition that we, that might help us, you know, keep him healthy and be able to have a longer life. And so it's really, it's, it's the kind of decisions that I think most parents make months in a lifetime. We've had a lot of practice making them all the time and, and you do get better at it. You know, I think that's something that particularly for parents who might be kind of in the early stages of this, like, I, I, I definitely have had to think consciously about how I make decisions for him and develop my own sense of kind of what principles I want to guide those decisions. Um, it's not always what our medical team wants or, um, uh, and it's not easy, but fortunately I have a partner um, in my husband who, you know, is very much aligned with, with me in terms of, you know, helping think through, thinking through carefully, you know, balancing Phillips healthcare needs and his need to be out of the hospital and in school and have a quality of life. And we just then take it a day at a time. The barrage of decisions is that's constant is hard to even listen to. I mean, I feel like so many rare disease families and patients definitely feel that. And in your case, it, it sounds even more intense for for the little guy. And I wonder, you said you definitely got better at it and and learned which ways to kind of take more seriously, but how did you kind of keep your head on straight and be able to kind of be that mom who's making sandwiches and doing the laundry on top of these decisions? Like what are some, what are some things you realized you had to let go or to laugh at to be able to just understand all this nonsense? I actually have a very specific strategy. <laughs> okay, we need it. Give us the tips. <laughs> well, and I hope your I hope your listeners don't think I'm being a little too um, flippant because I really am not. But my family and I we call it the bright side game, and we try to take the kind of most challenging things that come along and find even the brightest, like the littlest bright corner. And I know this maybe sounds also a little bit like fluffy, but really like when my, I'll give you an example, like a month or so ago, Philip went in for an MRI, which of course, in retrospect, we wish he'd, we said no to uh, because he's had persistently elevated liver enzymes. He had a liver transplant a few years ago and he it's just never, his liver numbers never been happy. His liver's never been happy. And one of the theories is that it has to do with whatever underlying mitochondrial probably condition he has. But, you know, the details aside, we went into this MRI and he had a really unfortunate um, complication of anesthesia. He had an aspiration event in the procedure and ended up in the ICU on high flow oxygen, quite, quite sick with an aspiration pneumonia. And also the MRI came back and really didn't have any answers for us. They didn't see any of the things they thought they might see that could have given us a path forward in terms of trying to, you know, help his liver feel better. And so, you know, it was a dark chapter, you know, um, of many, you know, what, you know, he was here, I have my kid who's super sick in the ICU. We didn't learn anything from the test. What's the path forward here? by kind of by chance, because he had this aspiration pneumonia, they had to give him a, a lot of really strong antibiotics. And lo and behold, his liver numbers got better. <laughs> and so we're like, you know what, I think that because he ended up in the ICU with aspiration pneumonia, and got a bunch of antibiotics, we we think that maybe there's an infectious component that's causing his liver numbers to be elevated. And so I mean, when we, you know, are searching for these 
you know, what are the, is there any bright side here? You know, we, we laugh about it and it's of course kind of dark humor, but you know, it's, I do think that even through COVID and things like that, you know, everything that the last year and a half has, has brought us, you know, the fact that, for example, Philip's school was only, you know, very limited day for him this year, you know, was really challenging, but then it actually was probably good for him because he could actually attend more than he could have if he had had a longer day, which he really wouldn't have been able to tolerate. So, you know, I think it's kind of, you know, it's, it, it is a shifting of perspectives. Um, and it's not, it's definitely not a like, you know, solution for everything. But, you know, when, when we can find the moments to, you know, find the levity, even if it's a dark form of levity and, in the um, insanity that we're trying to manage, you know, that's, that, that's honestly what gets me through is, you know, my family and their just stalwart support, um, my husband, my, my sisters, my parents, um, and my other kids. And yeah, just trying to not take ourselves too seriously as much, as best as we can, even when we have very, very serious. <laughs> Put a big smile on my face. I think everyone listening uh, can definitely understand the gallows humor. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they're, they're definitely caught up with you there. <laughs> and like you said, that brought forth some incredibly important data that you might not have found in a, another situation that maybe wouldn't have been as controlled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So sometimes when you shoot in the dark, you hit something, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the bright side game. I love that. I love everything about it. What are you most proud of so far from the last six years or maybe even the last year specifically in your advocacy? Two different things. And also they align very closely. Um, you know, I think, you know, Philip has, in terms of how proud of the last six years, the fact that you know, my husband and I are still a team that my children are, you know, on most days happy and thriving. And, you know, Philip, I have had to learn to navigate every system, our state to get him access to regional center services, to regional center services when he's older, to the appropriate school-based things, to California Children's Services. You know, I've had to learn a million different systems that I never thought I would have to learn and was actually even able to get him uh, access to ABA therapy, um, even though he doesn't have an autism diagnosis, by going through the regional center and getting him qualified there and then getting it paid for through Medi-Cal. And since then, our pediatrician's office who suggested I try that, they'd never had anyone succeed. But now that we've succeeded, they say they've gotten a bunch of other families to succeed. So I bring up that example because I feel like that person, like I, I was advocating for Philip, but as we all kind of forge pathways through these, the, bureau, the morass of bureaucracy that we're all dealing with, you know, some of those pathways might stay open and like other people can, you know, follow the lead and we can hopefully, you know, in- improve access um, slowly but surely, you know, chipping away at, at the at the barriers. So, you know, I, I, I am really proud of what I've been able to achieve in terms of getting wraparound services for Philip. And I feel like, you know, more, maybe more than a lot of the medical pieces, you know, just you know, having him with good therapeutics, behavioral support, physical and occupational speech therapy support, you know, he's looking at him, you would not believe the length of his medical history. I mean, it's not that you wouldn't recognize that he has challenges, but he's, he's in so many ways thriving above and beyond, you know, what, um, what could be maybe as expected, certainly, um, given what he went through even in his first couple of years of life. And, 
in terms of thinking about what I'm most proud of in terms of my advocacy, you know, I, I still feel like an infant in this world. Um, you know, I'm still really learning um, from others how to navigate the advocacy. It's, it's a very different, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a researcher. And so I'm, it's a different style of communication. It's a different, there are a lot of incredible skills that people who have been doing this for a long time have that I've been really just excited to learn about and learn from those people um, who, who do this work so effectively in the rare disease community. And I think that, you know, the rare disease community, it is a community. It has uh, an identity and people who fight for it. And I think that that's a really incredible thing and, and, and something I'm really proud to, to be a part of. And, you know, I don't, I, I came into this kind of advocacy work in terms of trying to improve access for undiagnosed patients and maintain this incredible resource that we have. Um, it's funny, I don't feel like I can say that there's anything I'm proud of, not because I, I don't feel like I've done a lot, because I, I have had the opportunity to do a lot and learn a lot, but because we're just, it's been such a team effort, first of all. Um, you know, my co-chair of the peer group, Troy Evans, is like, the, he's like the man with the silken voice like he just like knows how to talk to people and like has this incredible skill set and you know my my colleague Sarah Marshall has this incredible story of her daughter that she tells in this way that just people can't not pay attention and you know so many others on our in our group less pride I think at this point than just gratitude for for the relationships I've been able to um, form in through that work and certainly there's still a lot to be done. So stay tuned maybe for that. Mm. <laughs> I love the way you put that. And I would say that another, maybe one of your skills is that you do your homework though, Megan, like you actually are following through and figuring out how to get things done in all these different avenues. Whereas sometimes that's too hard for a lot of people to do. And it takes a lot of bandwidth in every aspect. So that's a that's a huge success too. And real quick touch on the ABA therapy, awesome job. And keep telling people that, especially I think for the rare disease community, ABA just needs to like lose the lid on just being for autism because it's so valuable to kids like ours. And I think that ceiling needs to be broken. So congratulations on that. That's not easy. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I will keep saying it. Yes, it's such a such, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. What is Philip's superpower? He has the best belly laugh ever. <laughs> since he was a baby, since he was born, like, he just, like, he lets it, and he has this, <laughs> he has this really, like, big, kind of distended belly because of all of his surgeries, and, and so he oh, has buddy. this kind of cute belly forward prominent shape, but then, but then when he lets it go, like, the whole thing, like, shakes and he just his whole body um just from the <laughs> core of him just like gurgles and chuckles and like in a way that's just very it's not like a giggle it's like a full throttled joyful sound that, like you can't not laugh when you hear it so like <laughs> he just has this ability to make people smile that is um that is one of a kind and it's it's yeah he was born with it he just has this it's incredible laugh and it's gotten us all through a lot of a lot of days so i'm so <laughs> grateful for it oh my gosh i cannot wait to hear it sounds like my own little dude they'd be mm -hmm. bounds <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Well, Megan, just really one more thing I'd like you to leave for any undiagnosed families listening, maybe right in the beginning of their journey or kind of where you're at. 
Do you want to leave them with an offering of wisdom or any words of encouragement? All of us who are in this space just feel like we're figuring it out a day at a time. So maybe if nothing else, know that you are not a, you're in good company if you feel like you're you're um, kind of a, you know sailing about in the wind without a clear direction. But there are people out there who are working on and thinking about these issues, and I do think I I am very hopeful. You know, we have come a long way in the last ten years um, in. Um, improving diagnosis for rare disease patients. I think the next 10 years is going to be about improving access to that technology and getting it out there to more people in an affordable manner um, and sooner so that people aren't stuck in these um, long odysseys longer than they have to be. And, you know, even though it may feel like your people aren't out there, we're out there and we're always happy to to talk and share resources. I was just in communication last week with a mom who whose child went through the Undiagnosed Diseases Network and didn't find a diagnosis, at least at this point. And, you know, we were brainstorming, you know, what other programs are out there? What else can she do? You know, what what is the right next step? Myself, my fellow peer members, and many others in the rare and, and the undiagnosed community in particular are resources that you should reach out to. And we're always happy to talk. Megan, thanks for being my guest today and sharing about your advocacy journey and Lil Philip. I think it's going to be really, really valuable for a lot of our listeners. So thanks for being my guest today. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.